Welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Monday, July 1st, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Harris faces false birther-style attacks, an update on the viewer numbers for last week's debates, thoughts on when candidates will begin dropping out, and Buttigieg raises a boatload of money in Q2. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Okay, file this first story under things I thought we'd left behind because we're better than this, but apparently we aren't. After Senator Kamala Harris's participation in Thursday night's debate, Donald Trump Jr. decided to comment on her race. Okay, I'm going to read here from a Vox article by Gabriela Resto Montero, and there are quotes embedded within it, so I will mark those as they happen. Overall, quote, Following that speech, Trump retweeted a member of the alt-right who claimed that because Harris's parents are Jamaican and Indian, her experience does not represent the authentic African-American experience. Quote, Kamala Harris is implying that she is descended from American black slaves, the tweet read. She's not. She comes from Jamaican slave owners. That's fine. She's not an American black. Period. End quote. Quote, is this true? Wow! End quote. Trump wrote. He later deleted the tweet. His spokesperson, Andy Sarabian, said he did so because his followers were misconstruing his message. End overall quote. So look, this lines up with a long-standing tradition within the Trump family of questioning the veracity of black presidential candidates' birth stories. Donald Trump Sr. spent a lot of time over the years asking for President Obama to produce his birth certificate as part of a complex conspiracy theory about whether he was indeed born in Hawaii, or instead was a secret Muslim who had been born in another country and then lied about both his religion and his birthplace just to attain political power. This BS took up literally years of media attention, and, shocker, Obama was indeed born at the Kapiolani Medical Center for Women and Children in Honolulu. His birth certificate is on file in the National Archives, and you can see it for yourself online. There is a very clear distinction here between fact and lies, and Trump Sr. was a key driver of that false narrative for years despite being presented with the actual evidence he had requested in order to refute the theory. Okay, so the point of that conspiracy theory against Obama was very specific. That idea was, technically, if Obama had not been born in the U.S., according to the Constitution, he would not be eligible for the presidency. That conspiracy theory came to be known as the birther theory, and again, I want to be extremely clear, it is false. The idea behind the attack on Harris, though, is a little murkier, and I can't speak to the intent of either the author of the original tweet or Donald Trump Jr., but I can tell you that somebody saying, quote, she's not an American black, end quote, is both a lie and a racist statement. I'm not even going to get into the details of that racism here because I do not wish to give further platform to lying trolls on the internet. Okay, so the interesting thing is what happened next. Essentially, the entire field of Democratic primary candidates sprang to Harris's defense, calling out this racist statement for what it was. I'm going to read some quotes here. Here's Joe Biden on Twitter. Quote, The same forces of hatred rooted in birtherism that questioned Barack Obama's American citizenship and even his racial identity are now being used against Senator Kamala Harris. It's disgusting and we have to call it out when we see it. Racism has no place in America, end quote. 
And here's a tweet from Senator Elizabeth Warren, quote, The attacks against Kamala Harris are racist and ugly. We all have an obligation to speak out and say so. And it's within the power and obligation of tech companies to stop these vile lies dead in their tracks, end quote. In that one, she's alluding to the fact that a bunch of automated Twitter accounts had begun spreading the same lie, and Twitter had not managed to shut them down. This is, sadly, a common problem on Twitter and other social media platforms as well. And now, here's a tweet from Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Quote, The presidential competitive field is stronger because Kamala Harris has been powerfully voicing her black American experience. Her first-generation story embodies the American dream. It's long past time to end these racist, birther-style attacks. End quote. This continued with expressions of support on Twitter from essentially all the candidates standing united against this racist lie. Reading once more to close this segment from that Vox article, and again, most of this is an embedded quote from Harris, so I will mention that when it happens. Overall quote, Harris has been fielding this line of attack since her days as a Senate candidate, and after launching her campaign, she said on The Breakfast Club of people criticizing her expression of identity and her parents, Quote, this is the same thing they did to Barack. This is not new to us. We know what they're trying to do. They're trying to do what has been happening the last two years, which is powerful voices trying to sow hate and division among us. We need to recognize when we're being played. End quote, and overall quote, and end story. This next item is a quick one. On Friday, I talked about what are called flash results for the viewership of the Thursday night debate. Those are the initial numbers before crunching the data more thoroughly. After the show aired, we got the full results from Nielsen, which were actually higher than the flash results. The Nielsen report revealed that in the TV audience only, not including streaming, the Thursday debate drew 18.1 million TV viewers. That is a record for a Democratic primary debate, the biggest number ever for a Democratic primary debate. Having said that, that's not the overall record for a primary debate. A Fox News Republican primary debate in August 2015 drew 24 million viewers, and that is the number one primary debate in history. What's remarkable, really, is that Thursday is the number two debate in the history of all primary debates. Having these kinds of numbers this early in the cycle is a big deal. When we get to August, I'm confident that we will break that 2015 record from Fox. So just tell your 6 million friends to come over and watch the next debates with you at the end of the month, and we will smash that record. No problem. The Primary Ride Home is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of classes covering all kinds of skills. We're talking everything from creative writing to business to entrepreneurship to gardening, you name it. So whether you're picking up a project you've always wanted to finish and you just need a little know-how to get through it, or you're challenging yourself to get outside your comfort zone by learning a new skill, Skillshare has classes for you. 
I believe in continuing education. I love learning new things. I think maybe you noticed that listening to this podcast and hearing all the deep dives. Skillshare is all about learning. Okay, so when it comes to plants and yard and stuff, I am always pretty sure I can do new things, but I really want someone telling me step by step what exactly it is we are doing. So when I got Skillshare, I punched in gardening and right away a class popped up that I wanted to try. That class is called How to Grow a Succulent Garden from Leaves. That means if you have one leaf from one succulent, here's how to make a bunch more succulent plants. I watched it and then I went and borrowed some succulent leaves to experiment with. So join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for you. Get two free months. That's right, Skillshare is offering Primary Ride Home listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, you got to go to Skillshare.com PRH. Again, that is Skillshare.com PRH to start your two free months right now. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On Friday, comedian Samantha Bee released a video jokingly encouraging Democratic primary candidates to appear on her show, Full Frontal with Samantha Bee, to announce that they are dropping out of the race. While I'm not going to play that clip here, mainly because it contains a joke slash attack about one of the candidates specifically, it does raise a reasonable question, which is, okay, in this field of 25 candidates, at what point should we expect any of them to drop out? While I could do a whole show speculating on this, I want to give you some thoughts about it to keep in your back pocket. First off, nobody is going to drop out until after the Q2 fundraising numbers come out on the 15th. That is the absolute earliest that I could imagine any candidate in this field quitting. And frankly, I don't think anyone will at that point because there is no incentive to do so unless they have literally zero dollars in cash on hand or they decide they want to start running in some other race. More on that in a moment. Right now, all the candidates are working hard to either remain in the second set of debates or qualify for them in the first place and hope that they survive tiebreakers, which will be largely determined by their polling numbers. For those who have a relatively safe spot, they're focused on the third set of debates and beyond, trying to raise more money from more donors and get their poll numbers up as well. After the second debates, which are on Tuesday and Wednesday, July 30th and 31st, mark your calendars, it actually would make logical sense for some candidates to drop their campaigns. The most obvious candidate is, unfortunately, Mike Gravel, whose stated intent when joining the race was to get into the first two debates, then drop out and donate any remaining funds to a candidate who best aligns with his core beliefs. He later walked that back, saying he is in fact in it to win it, and I take him at his word on that. The reality is, though, at some point it would make sense for his campaign to either break out with mega big numbers and actually get into one of those debates, or just wind it down and get back to normal life. There is nobody else in this field that I feel comfortable pointing to right now and saying, hey, that campaign is definitely on the ropes, so we're going to have to wait and see. 
The other thing you need to know is that there is a very loud discussion going on inside the party about dealing with the Senate in 2021. The nightmare scenario for a Democratic president would be to win this election at the presidential level, but have the Senate retain a Republican majority. That would essentially block most of the stuff a Democratic president would want to achieve. So there is real pressure on certain candidates to drop their presidential bids and immediately flip over to Senate campaigns before it is too late. The main candidate who gets this treatment a lot is Beto O'Rourke, because he almost won a Senate race in Texas in 2018, and it's quite likely he would win the other seat in 2020 if he ran. But I think it's important to remind everybody that every candidate has free will and autonomy. They are individuals and they are allowed to do what they wish to do. This is not a team sport where the coach calls all the shots and tells the players where to go and what to do. So O'Rourke and all the others may simply stay in indefinitely and ignore the Senate pressure altogether. And our last story today is a big one. Early today, Mayor Pete Buttigieg's campaign released his Q2 fundraising numbers ahead of the FEC deadline on the 15th. We'll talk about those deadlines in just a moment. But the big headline here is that Buttigieg raised $24.8 million in Q2. That is a staggering number, which is likely why they released it on the very first day when it was possible to do so. Their financial quarter ended at midnight, by the way. So what does it mean for a candidate to raise almost $25 million in Q2 in this field? Well, first we can compare it to his Q1 number, which was about $7 million. So he made about three and a half times that in Q2, but we also know that his Q1 was heavily skewed because he really broke out after a town hall appearance on CNN partway through March. So he was probably raising most of his money in Q1 in late March until the deadline on the very last day of that month. But still, his Q1 number was already very good, and his Q2 number actually beats every single Q1 number on the books in this field. Let me say that one more time. In Q2 of this year, Buttigieg raised more money than any other Democratic candidate raised in Q1 of this year. That is a big deal, and that is exactly why his campaign is celebrating so hard right now. Okay, so this brings in a few more housekeeping notes about how these numbers work. So the candidates handle money on a quarterly basis. The first quarter of the year, which we call Q1, is January, February, and March. Q2 is April, May, and June. I'm not going to say the rest because I think you can figure them out. But the point is, within those three-month windows, the candidates bring in money through donations. This is called receipts. They also spend money. This is called disbursements. And then they are required by the Federal Election Commission, or FEC, to report the details of all of that activity by July 15th. So what this means is, leading up to July 15th, we will see candidates using the media cycle strategically to pre-release their numbers. Even though most campaigns probably have a really good handle on their numbers for Q2 right now, today, if they see their number as weak, they won't mention it in the press, but they'll just release it to the FEC on the 15th, so they'll end up among a large pack of other candidates without amazing numbers. 
On the flip side, if a candidate has really good numbers, and we should definitely expect big numbers from at least Biden and probably also Harris and Sanders and Warren, they may find an advantage to pre-releasing those numbers in order to get a story just like this one in the media on a given day. Now, there are three more factors to understand about these fundraising numbers. First, Buttigieg released how much he brought in this past quarter, and he also gave us basic info about what he spent. This is really important because we now know that Buttigieg has about $22.6 million in cash on hand. That's basically money in the bank he can spend right now. We'll have to wait for the 15th to find out how that all plays out for a bunch of other candidates because sometimes they don't release spending numbers along with their fundraising numbers. There are some candidates, most notably Warren, who have spent Q1 and we think Q2 aggressively spending in certain key states like Iowa. So part of the question is, yeah, great, if you brought in X dollars, how much of that did you already spend and how much is left in the bank? For Buttigieg, the overall picture there looks very good right now. The second key factor is the average donation for a given candidate within a given period of time. Meaning, you know, if somebody gives money to a candidate, are they giving like $1,000 or $100 or $1? This is all over the map, obviously, but averages help us understand whether somebody is raising money from a small number of rich donors or from a large number of not-so-rich donors. Famously, Senator Bernie Sanders had an average donation of $27 in the previous primary cycle, which was an indicator that he was getting a lot of small donations. So he was offering that number as evidence of his grassroots support. Buttigieg's average donation in Q2 was $47.42. Now that number is hard to comment on without the context of all the other campaign's numbers in the same quarter, and we're not going to know all of those until later this month. Oh, and Buttigieg also brought in 230,000 new donors in Q2, which brings his overall base of donors to 400,000. Meaning, again, he is showing growth in both the number of people giving him money as well as the total number of dollars he is receiving. This is really important because once you have a giant email list or text message list, you can ping those lists and try to get additional donations out of those people down the line. The final factor here is understanding that fundraising is typically viewed as relative. Essentially, in Q2 right now, we have only one number, the Buttigieg number, but we don't really know what anybody else brought in. So we can compare Buttigieg to himself in the prior quarter, and we see relative growth, big growth, like more than 3x his previous quarter. But we have no solid idea how he actually compares to the other candidates in the field. Yet. We should soon. Now, the other issue there is when a candidate brings in an unexpectedly large or small number. So, for instance, if a low polling candidate suddenly brings in way more money than the previous quarter, that is considered an indicator of momentum. That's a good thing. By the same token, if any candidate drops from quarter to quarter, that's generally bad. In any case, we are in the wacky season that we've seen before on this show. The time between the end of one quarter and the mid-month deadline for official FEC filings. So, you know, prepare yourselves for some money talk, and do check out that link in the show notes to the FEC database. Important note, it does not include today's Buttigieg number because the FEC does not formally update its data until after the deadline on the 15th. Oh, and I also included a link to the FEC page listing all the important dates in case you want to mark your calendars for when they have to submit whatever money numbers. 
Now, the other option there is just, you know, keep listening to this show and I will keep you posted as all the money comes in. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Well, summer is treating us well in Portland, with the jasmine blooming and highs in the low 80s. Envy me if you must, but I'll take it. It's basically porch weather right now, and I had a great time over the weekend ignoring politics and just recharging. I hope you all are able to find some time for yourselves, keep up that self-care, stay hydrated, and maybe read a good book. If you've got a book that you liked recently, political or not, let me know on Twitter, okay? As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow.